You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Lamentations chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Lamentations chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. This is the second week in a sermon series through the book of Lamentations before we move on to Matthew sometime in uh, right around June. And, uh, and so we are having this opportunity to consider something that often we don't really consider, and that is to set our hearts and minds on the sorrow and sadness of sin and suffering. There are a lot of S's in that sentence, but we are thinking carefully about what it means to be sinners and what it means to be sufferers and doing so because we believe, according to God's word, that the way to come out into the field of God's grace and restoring power is not to be dishonest about our sin and suffering, And not to be dismissive about our sin and suffering, but actually to look it in the face with hope and depending upon the Lord for his grace. And so as we look at this text this morning in Lamentations 1 verses 8 through 11, we're reminded that the Christian life really is, if you think about it, all about reversals. It's all about a kind of back and forth. We might think of the big picture of the Bible that we've talked about before in our church, thinking about the progression of God's redemptive story as it unfolds from from eternity past into eternity future, something sort of like this of creation first, of God creating the world, Adam and Eve, to be his worshipers in the garden, a perfect place, and then comes the fall. There's a reversal right there from creation to fall. But then we also have from the fall, the redemption, which comes because Jesus, the Son of God, entered our world in order to live a perfect life in our place and die a sacrificial death in our place and then to rise from the dead so that according to his grace, he would call all different kinds of people from around the world, many of whom are represented here, to himself so that they may be forgiven and saved and belong with him forever. There is another reversal. We see this kind of reversal all over our daily Christian lives. You know this. You know this at this time of year, the back and forth of our lives. We have spiritual reversals all the time where we seem to be going the right direction and then things turn around and we seem to be back to our old ways. I even read just recently, someone told me there's an app uh, for runners and bikers called Strava, and it's where you can log all of your runs and your rides and keep up with friends. Strava looked at all of the data of the users, and they declared the second Friday of January as Quitter's Day, because that's where they found most of the accounts just went dark. There was a lot of running and a lot of riding right up until that Friday. And there's another reversal. We feel that in our daily lives. Well, this morning, what we're going to consider are three ways that sin reversed the joys of God's people in the Old Testament, and then conclude, though, with Jesus' powerful position as the re-reverser. So let's notice these three ways that sin reversed the joys of Israel while also keeping in mind our own lives because this has very much to do with our experience and our walk with Christ, our own sin struggles, our own challenges of suffering, and see what God can teach us and help us as we walk with him. I want you to notice first as we look at just verse 8, that sin despises 
Now, that's an interesting thing to say because we could think of it as sin itself despising us. And certainly that's true. Our enemy, who is the father of lies, does despise us. And his, his greatest desire is for us to, to, to fall into sin and disobedience, to pull us away from our king. But uh, in another way, sin brings about despising and that's what we see here was the experience of God's people in the Old Testament, just as, as Jeremiah just before this has been unfolding the destruction of, of Jerusalem. So in the book of Lamentations, for those who are catching up, we read about Jerusalem as a city that has been uh, destroyed, and it is then relating also back to their spiritual lives. So let's notice first what the Bible says about sin and its despising control or effect. In verse 8, it says, Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she has become an object of scorn. All who honored her now despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. This is a place where we see sin as a great reverser. In this case, Israel's honor had been reversed into disdain. And as we think about the city, as well as their spiritual lives, Jerusalem had been a city of honor and prestige. But in the conquest of the Babylonians, as a result of the sin of God's people, they lost that prestige in their sin. And they became an object, as it says here at the second line of verse 8, Objects of scorn. That word scorn has always stood out in my mind whenever I have read it in the Bible or I've heard someone talk about it. And it was interesting just to look up a little more of what the word scorn means, this word that, that we're using. It actually is kind of two words put together, ex and cerne. Ex means out of or to pull out of. And cerne means to sift. So it's actually of the reverse, ironically, of being set apart for something like holiness. It's to set something apart for disdain or for derision. And so here we see that sin had this, this incredible devastating effect upon the people of God, and it has that devastating effect upon us. To take what is, what is most beautiful about us originally by God's design and to turn it into something of dishonor. And it makes sense why we as a culture, as people today, we don't like to think too much about our sin because it results in this feeling of scorn, this kind of derision. I mean, really, don't actually, I don't think you should actually do this. You decide. If you were to go out into the world and start talking to any stranger you could meet about their sin, what do you think would be the result? Would they engage in conversation with you? Would they invite you over for tea so that you could have more talk about, about how bad they are, about, about all the ways that they failed their children and their spouse and their employer and God? This would not be something that's welcomed because it's painful. It's not something that we, especially in our culture, want to talk about. But as I said at the beginning of this message, the real tragedy of it all is that according to the book of Lamentations, as we see it written here in so many other passages of Scripture, 
is that the way out into restoration or healing or a re-reversal of sin's effect is by being honest with our sin, not dishonest. By being focused in a way upon our sin and suffering, not being dismissive of it, trying to make it go away as quickly as we can. And that seems to be the, the common trend of our culture, isn't it? That's even the common trend of my heart. I don't like talking about my sin. I don't like facing it. And you don't either. But here we find the importance of making sure that we have a proper perspective on who we are as people, what it means to be sinners, what it means to be sufferers, the kinds of things that are going on in our lives. But again, we remember this is hard. I mean, listen to the kinds of words that the author of Lamentations is using in verse 8. All who honored her now despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. This is kind of a biblical uh, like cliche or metaphor that is referring to the vulnerability and the um, feeling of dishonor that most of us would feel if our nakedness was uncovered. You've had dreams like this. Hopefully this hasn't happened in real life, but you can imagine the vulnerability and weakness and suffering that you would feel if you were to be exposed to the world. It's this kind of language that the Bible uses to speak honestly about what it means to be a sinner, to get at the very heart of it so that we can grasp it and so that we can see it rightly and be led out by it in a way into that field of God's grace and his restorative power. In the gospel, because there, there is no way to appreciate the good news of the gospel without appreciating the bad news of the law or the bad news of our sin and what it means to be sinners before a holy God. There's simply no way. This has been one of the downfalls of, the, in particular, the American church. Certain points in history, more recent history, something like what's sometimes coined as like the seeker-sensitive model of church, it's an approach to church or the Christian life that tries to dismiss all of the uncomfortable things and just major on the, on the things that will feel good, the things that will keep you coming. Well, giving, getting a real clear look in the mirror at our own sin is not the kind of thing that we would think keeps people coming. Not unless, not unless they come to terms with it and it drives them to Christ who is full of grace and mercy. But we need these kinds of words in order to help us. And these words are all over the Bible. I'll show you just one other passage that's always stood out to me. And it's been kind of a, a key verse in my heart as I've thought about my own sin and the way the Bible speaks honestly about it. It's in Romans chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul wrote in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12. Listen to these striking words. puts it so clearly. And we, we also know, we keep in mind, as I said a moment ago, these are not words that... That, that, that go over very well in our modern day. And that modern day has affected us. And so we should be on the lookout in our own hearts when we hear these words for the dismissive attitude toward them. He said in Romans 3, there's no one righteous. Not even one. Not even one. Can't you think of one righteous person? Anyone you were to think of in terms of God's definition of righteousness, 
would not pass the test. We're, we're confused if we think that there's someone out in the world that is righteous. Paul says, not even one. Listen to verse 11. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. That is such hard language for our world to hear. That's hard language for me, modern guy living in this world, to hear. It doesn't match the puzzle of my life. It doesn't match into my, the kind of typical worldview. It doesn't fit in there. Worthless, that's the exact opposite message of the world that the world is giving today. Worthless. But it does say something very clear about our sin, doesn't it? It tells us exactly what sin has done and why it has this despising effect is that sin is not a small problem. It's an enormous problem. Sin is not a shallow problem. It's a deep problem. It strikes to the very heart of what it means to be human. And as people who, yes, are made in the image of God, it has marred us and it has made us, in a sense, worthless, at least in and of ourselves. Therefore, we can't look to ourselves for our own worth or to hold ourselves up or to esteem ourselves. But the only way to find any kind of worth or value then is, of course, by grace alone. It is for the God of the universe to do what we read about so often in Scripture and even in this book of Lamentations, a book about sorrow and sadness over sin and suffering, that he has met us with grace and he has loved us anyway. But we still need, in order to appreciate that, a clear view, a willingness and because of Christ, we can have it, a willingness to, with hope, really estimate what it means to be a sinner and sufferer. This is an enormous challenge for us, in part, and it's not the only reason, but in part because of our culture. There are just so many things to fill our attention, to take our minds away from the things that would be less comfortable, like thinking about what it means to be a sinner, thinking about uh, ways that we have fallen short in our lives so that we might look to Christ all the more and magnify him all the more. There's so many things that take our attention away. It was really fascinating. I read recently uh, in a book about this problem, uh, the story of Sylvan Goldman. In 1936, uh, this guy uh, was, I think, the owner of the Humpty Dumpty supermarket. That was a long time ago. I've never heard of that, but it existed then. And he revolutionized the supermarket game. And the way that he did it is by one day having this eureka moment, which was the idea of creating, wait for it, a shopping cart. Something that would be bigger and deeper than the basket that someone would bring to the supermarket because then the customers were not restricted to buy only what they could fit in their basket. They could load up the cart and it would have wheels on it. They could push it around and it would just explode their business. Now think about this. Over time, this same concept has developed and developed and developed even to today that you, your most common shopping cart is not 
in the Humpty Dumpty supermarket, it's where? It's on Amazon. It's on eBay. It's on all, all of these places. But listen, that shopping cart is bottomless. In fact, think about everything in our lives. How bottomless the, the input of all of the producers is. This, this input constantly, even just riding around, listening to the antiquated device in your car, the radio, you're constantly being hit with commercials, messages. Look at this. Look at that. Think about this. Think about that. It's endless. The scrolling. All of that that we do. And it's no wonder how easy it is for us to dismiss anything else that would bring any kind of discomfort to our hearts because our shopping cart is bottomless. It constantly, it never fills up. So what that means is that we are going to have to make a change. We're going to have to take some kind of action to create a reversal of that effect. It means that we're going to have to cut off some of what is coming in to create the bandwidth that we need to focus on this. To be willing, with joy, with hope, because of Christ, to look in the mirror of God's law, to think carefully about what it means to be a sinner, to investigate together our own suffering and hardship, the kind of despised feelings that we often feel, uh, the sense that, that we are made naked to the world and uh, everyone is looking at me, all of those experiences, to think about them and to be willing to look them and in particular to look our sin in the face. That's the first way that we can apply this text is to do what Lamentations is doing. It's bringing sin right up close in front of our face. In all of the little angles and colors and shadows, it's showing us what it means to be a sinner, what sin does, and doing it in striking words. This is what we must do. And we can do it with hope. We're not talking about a morbid kind of deathly introspection. We're not talking about the kind of gazing into our own sin and suffering that drives us down into the depths of despair, but we're talking about the kind of hope-filled gaze that looks into it and properly estimates what it means to be a sinner and suffer, and then at the same time, at the same time, looks to Christ as the ultimate answer. It's not an either-or. You don't have to do one or the other. It's not either I look at my sin or I look at Christ. It's both, and it's both at the same time. But it has to begin. It has to begin with this reversal for us to think carefully and be willing to look into the face of our sin. Here's second. The second way that sin reversed the joys of Israel is that sin stains. Just looking at verse 9, more graphic language is used here. Listen to it. Her uncleanness stains her skirts. She never considered her end. Her downfall was astonishing. There was no one to comfort her. Lord, look on my affliction for the enemy triumphs. Now, this is graphic language that the Bible is using. And because we're in a kind of mixed company, perhaps, and the live stream's going, we can be discreet about it. This uncleanness stains her skirts part um, it's most likely related to a kind of monthly cycle that adults know about. It's a way that the Bible talks about 
impurity. In fact, there are other places in Scripture in the Old Testament that this this time of that cycle was a time of uncleanness. So it's, it's kind of another reference to highlight the striking uncleanness and impurity of sin, which was brought upon Israel and Jerusalem. Again, this is not the only place that the Bible speaks about it. The Bible is honest and repeated. In Isaiah 64, 6, this kind of cross-reference passage might come to mind for you when you read this in Lamentations. In Isaiah, it says, all of us have become like something unclean. Do you remember the next part? All our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. It's, it's the same kind of reference to a, uh, a menstrual cloth. All of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of those acts that we think are righteous, all of those things that we think will measure up in the end, and perhaps all of those things that the world may be thinking, misguided as it is, that just being a good person will satisfy the God of the universe because they know that he exists and they know that he has a law because in a way it's written on their hearts and they try to measure up even the most righteous of all the acts you could ever consider ever done in the world are filthy rags, polluted garments. It says, all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. Notice again, the bright, visible representation of sin's impurity. And what we see here, to even go back to this first point that we just finished, it's repeated again, the encouragement to us, because we're seeing, how did this happen? How did this happen? Notice what it says in verse 9, again, the second line there. It says, she never considered her end. This is how it happened. Israel, the people of God, in the midst of all of their blessing. They did not consider their end. Therefore, the downfall was astonishing. It was totally surprising. This, again, it's getting back to that sense in which we are so often disconnected, uh, dishonest, dismissive from the reality of our sin. We're not estimating correctly what, what it means, how serious and deep and wide it is, how, how enormous was the mountain of our sin. It's, it's impurity, it's staining effect. She didn't think carefully about sin and disobedience. Didn't recognize the danger and cautions against it, which were repeated over and over again. And on the other side, did not rightly esteem the promises of God's blessing in the midst of faithfulness, his faithfulness to them and their faithfulness to him. It could be that this is what really speaks to you today. Whether you're, you're watching this later, you're watching on the live stream, or you're here right now. It could be that you find this reaching in or speaking into your own heart that you have not been properly estimating the sin that you're involved in. It's lingered and lingered and grown and grown, but somehow you just keep dismissing it. You just keep covering it up and hiding it away in the dark or sweeping it under a rug. 
there's another caution here. She never considered her end. And therefore, her downfall was astonishing. And in the end, that downfall was so great that there was no one to comfort her. No one to comfort her. The enemy triumphs, it says at the end of verse 9. There was no comfort. But notice this. There is a bright little glimmer of hope. It's the first one we've seen so far in Lamentations. In verse 9, Lord, look on my affliction. Something's changed. It's another kind of reversal. You're seeing the back and forth. We have had so far this, this mounting evidence of sin and suffering and, and impurity and disdain and being despised and, and all the rest. This picture of incredible sorrow, incredible sadness and hardship, incredible devastation, and then hiding down in the fibers of sin and sorrow are these words, Lord, Look on my affliction. It's a plea. It's a plea in the darkness of darkness. And it's a glimmering sense of hope that there is hope even here. Even after all that we have read, there is still a spark and it's crying out for the Lord's help, this plea. I want to point out a few things. They'll be on the screen if you're taking notes. And I think they're really helpful um, just thoughts about this plea for us to think about in maybe the next week. They may come up in community group uh, discussions this week, but if they don't, even just personally, it, it would be good for us to take this moment and really look into what this plea means. It's just a few words. Sometimes that's all we have, isn't it? In the midst of our own sin and suffering, our own sorrow and sadness, we, we, all, we don't know what to say. And sometimes it's just a few words like, look, Lord, look on my affliction. Uh, let me make just a few points here, five actually, about what this plea is about. I want you to notice that this plea is an appeal. It's an appeal for, for divine attention, that God would attend to her in this situation, this uh, representing uh, the great city of Jerusalem, now fallen, representing the people of God and their, their cry out to their king to help them and to come reach them and re restore them, rescue them. Even our own plea, asking for his attention. Sometimes in those moments, that's all we have. God, please look on our affliction. Give attention to what is going on. Second, we don't want to miss that this is a real recognition of God's sovereignty. Listen, the picture that's painted intentionally in the book of Lamentations is supposed to communicate to you a sense of hopelessness. That's what sin does. That's what God's law does. Remember in Galatians, the law of God says, do this and live. It says, keep all the commands and then you can have the promise. And of course, that's bad news to sinners like you and me because we haven't kept the commands. You haven't kept all of them. You've broken all of them. The Bible's clear about that. What's the point? What's the law doing? Driving us into despair, driving us into the dust of our sins so that we feel as though there's nowhere to turn. It's hopeless. Our faces are down on the ground so that, so that we will look to God 
in his sovereignty as the one with whom there's always hope, the one who is always in control. The situation, no matter how out of control it feels for me, is not out of control for him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that though God is touched intimately by these words, by this experience of sin and suffering, he is not worried about it. He doesn't lose sleep. He doesn't sleep. If he did, he wouldn't lose any. He knows all. He has all power. He's not fretting. He does not wring his hands. He does not wonder how this is going to work out. He already knows because he's already ordained it. Lord, Lord, look on my affliction. Third, we see that this is a personal as well as a corporate kind of lament. The pronoun is my. Lord, look on my affliction. And we've kind of seen in the book of Lamentations this corporate sense as well as this personal sense. Just like we had seen in, we've seen in the book of Job, we know from the book of Job that there's a, a similar story that unfolds of, of suffering and it's personal. Here it's personal and corporate. And there's this desire for my affliction, my personal situation to be known by you, calling out to a God who knows and desires to know. But also notice that this simple statement, even if that's all that you have, it communicates much more than just those few words may seem. It communicates a real trust in God's compassion. Why would you call out, Lord, look on my affliction, unless you thought that there was compassion to be had? This is one of the great truths of the Christian life, that no one, no one comes to Christ unless they are assured of his grace. No one does. No one comes to their, to their enemy asking for grace. You don't expect any grace from your enemy. So they would never say to their enemy, Lord, look on my affliction. That would be the worst thing that could happen. But here, something different is, is at work. Lord, look on my affliction is a plea for help. Have compassion on me. Me, a sinner. Me, who is suffering, in this case, at my own hands. That's been clear from the text. And then finally, number five, notice that there is at the heart of this plea a desire for intervention. Not just to look, not just to see, not just to give attention, not just to feel compassion, but to actually intervene. Come to my aid. Rescue me. This only happened because the case was clearly made and sin was clearly seen. That's the only way that it happens. If you find, like me, that you don't cry out to God with the feeling that you know you should and the frequency that you know you should, there's a reason. It's because I'm out of touch with my need. I'm outgrowing my sense of sin and vulnerability and suffering. I don't see as clearly as I need to just how desperate is my condition. I'm talking about in this moment. I'm not talking about in my worst moment. I'm talking about in this moment. I am utterly desperate 
for help. So are you. And it only comes about by recognizing that. That's why we're, we're really hitting hard in this text on the need to face the reality of our sin and suffering head on, with hope, but head on. Because we have to endure, in a way, we have to endure the pain of this kind of disdain in order to produce the desires for healing, for help, for restoration, for compassion in Christ. Our 15-year-old son sprained his ankle recently in basketball practice, had to sit out a few games, really painful thing. And for anybody that's been involved in competitive sports, you know that when you sprain an ankle, the very first place you go is into a bucket of ice water. Have you ever put a hand or a foot into a bucket of ice water? It might be the most painful thing I can imagine. No offense to the mothers. I don't know what that's like, but it's bad. But it's necessary. He doesn't want to do it. I wouldn't want to do it either. But if you don't, healing will not come. It will not come as quickly. It will not come as thoroughly. There's something in God's mysterious wisdom that has ordered many things in our world this way. That there is, there is the necessity of endurance in order to arrive at restoration. So therefore, we need to keep this in mind as well. I want to remind you of this quote as a kind of application to this point about sin's stain. And that's from a guy named Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor from long ago. And he said this, it's a, it's a really pithy line, but it stays, stays with you and I hope that it will stay with you. He says, for every look at yourself or your sin, take three looks at Christ. For every look at yourself or your sin, take three looks at Christ. Now, notice something about this. His quote doesn't say, take three looks at Christ. His quote assumes that the three looks at Christ follow looks at your sin. This is not something that is uh, unknown to Robert Murray McShane. It's what he expects. It's, it's the way of the Christian life. But it's the part that we don't tend to really give much attention to. So maybe there's a place for us to camp out in our own daily lives make a bit of a habit of reflecting on it. Uh, for just a while, reflect upon those moments where we have been at our lowest. Maybe to reflect upon a low moment that you're in right now and not to shy away from it, but with the hope-filled gaze that we're talking about today, look into it. Take that look at yourself. Take that look at your sin. And then, and then take three looks at Christ, because he is our hope. He's the one who, who brings compassion. He is the, the source of divine attention. He is the, the king of all sovereignty in the midst of our sin and suffering. He is full of compassion. That question has been answered for eternity. It never needs to be asked again. Does Jesus have compassion on sinners? Yes, he does. He gave all for us, and he did it by intervening himself. The final way that we see sin reverse the joys of Israel here is that sin impoverishes. Notice verses 10 and 11. The author of Lamentation says, the enemy has stretched out his hand over all her precious articles, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those who had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan when they search for bread. They've traded their precious belongings for food in order to stay alive. 
Lord, look and see how I have become despised. So finally here we see sin, in a way, as an enemy of God's people and an enemy who is robbing precious treasures. Is that not what the devil would look like to do for you and me? To rob us of the, the precious treasures that are ours in Christ. And we are not talking here in this moment about our material possessions, though that certainly was true for Jerusalem as a city. We're talking about our spiritual possessions. We're talking about the assurance of our faith in Christ. Very similar to, the again, the account of Job. Though he was blameless and Israel is sinful, both, both were facing the same kind of experience in connection with their enemy. But keep this in mind. Grace is the great re-reverser. Grace always has the last word. We can look into the face of our sin because we know that there's another word coming. And that word is grace. We're reminded in texts like this that Jesus himself, because we know how, how the story continues to unfold into the New Testament and on really into eternity because of our time in the book of Revelation, is that Jesus is the potter who made this vase of his people, which is, uh, which is um, talked about as the city of Jerusalem. And he is the, the potter that though sin may mar it or break it, that he's the potter who will put it back together again. This is why we say that grace will have the last word. That's a needed word of hope in this moment, in our world. Because just looking at your sin cannot help you. It cannot change you. Just looking at it and saying, I've got to do better, will never make a difference in your life. There's no amount of willpower that can overcome this. But instead, we look to Christ because grace is the last word. Let me show you this here because it stands out to me, and I, I want it to stand out to you the way that Jesus is the re-reverser of this curse of sin and the effects and the staining and despising and impoverishing of sin in this suffering. Notice again in verses 10 and 11, the enemy has stretched out his hand over all her precious articles for she, she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. This is interesting because the nation of Israel was not a missionary people. So this sounds like a good thing to us. We love for the nations. In fact, they have because we have many people representing lots of different places, languages, colors around the world. That's what we want. But in this case, for the nations to come into the sanctuary is actually a result of their downfall. They have come in. They've been pillaged. Their precious belongings have been taken. Those who do not belong are coming in. But notice the way that Jesus will one day reverse this. Ultimately, Jesus has gone out into the nations. When I read this and I see, for she, she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly, immediately flooding into my mind is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Listen to it. Listen to the way that Jesus has changed this whole situation. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
What an incredible reversal of what we've read about in 10 and 11. When the nations are coming in and pillaging, those who are not invited into the assembly, now in Christ, now in Christ are welcome. Notice that Jesus provides what they lack. Look at verse 11. All her people groan while they search for bread. They traded their precious belongings for food in order to stay alive. What kind of desperate situation must you be in? But yet again, why do we look three times at Christ for every look at our sin? Because he is, in this case, the bread of life. In John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, incredible hope buried here in the words of this text in Lamentations. And then finally, you notice that they've traded their precious belongings for food in order to stay alive. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that Jesus is the restorer of precious things. It says, for you know the grace, there's that last word, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty, that spiritual poverty may become spiritually rich. He is the one who restores. And so it's no wonder why this little text again, the way the others have end in the same way, Lord, look and see how I have become despised. There's the plea, Lord, look and see. I would like to encourage all of us to really take this plea to heart. This is a simple plea straight from the pages of scripture that we can utter with our own hearts to the Lord in these moments, which is every moment, but especially in these moments of sin and suffering. Lord, look and see. Please look upon me. See where I am. I need your help. That may be all that we have. Or we may be in a place where things are going relatively well. Beware. When things are going well, that you don't underestimate your need the way that I do. Because even then, you should say, Lord, look and see. Lord, look and see where I am. Continue to help me. I'm dependent upon you. And what this ultimately amounts to is that we need to do what the Bible does. And that is make grace our last word. Make grace your last word. That's the last application of the text here because that is what the author of Lamentations keeps doing. Lord, look on my affliction. Give me grace. I need grace. Please help me. Of course, this kind of help, as we say every week, begins with faith in Christ. And it begins for every person because no one is born a Christian No one is a Christian because they grew up in church. You're only a Christian because God has worked a work of marvelous grace in your heart. You've repented of your sin and placed your trust in Jesus and become a disciple of his. That that's what may need to happen for you today. That you would turn from your sin. That you would reverse course by his grace. And you would find Jesus to be the great re-reverser of this curse of sin and bring you to himself. I really pray that would happen. And if that needs to happen for you, let me encourage you to make this appeal yours in this way. Lord, look on me. Give me everything that I need so that I can believe in you because I see today that I need you. And if you cry out to God with a plea like that, we want to know about it. If you have questions about that kind of plea and how Jesus fits into your life, we want to know about that so we can talk about it. 
So I hope that you will contact us one way or another. At the end of the service, if you're here, if you're on the live stream, you see this another way, contact the church. We'd love to talk to you. If you're local, we'd love to get together, have some coffee, talk about the Bible, talk about Jesus. Nothing would make us happier. Nothing would be better for you if that's what you need. So let me encourage that. Before we sing, let me invite you to stand again right now as you're able so that we can pray together. I allowed in you and your hearts that God would use these words of lamentations to change our hearts and to strengthen us and to focus us on what's most important. So our Father, now as we prepare our hearts to sing again, we do ask that you would look upon us. Look upon our affliction. We are sinners. We are sufferers. We are We are in trouble all in different ways, and we need your rescuing power. We need your transforming grace. We need you to prove to be for us the reverser of our sin. We pray that you would give us your heavenly attention and that you would shower us with your compassion and because you're in control, that you would work in us and intervene in our lives today in every small and big way needed. You know all, you know what we need. And so we pray that you would deliver and that you would help us and grow us and change us uh, even in this moment as we sing to you. Help us to carry these truths with us, make this our plea in the midst of these songs that we are singing. And as we give to you today uh, through our offering, we pray uh, that you would be pleased and that it would be useful to you because we want, as we've heard today, to see the nations come into your sanctuary. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.